this current COVID-19 impact, the potential impact, is going to hit quite hardly in places which have been suffering for a long time. Hi, this is Eric Bagley of the Rocket FM Studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode five of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. I'm joined on the phone line by Mark Vanenbosch. Great to be here, thank you. And also looking forward to actually being in the studio later this week. A little later on in this episode, we'll be joined by our old friend Dave Truba, who is a board member of the Water Supply and Sanitation Collaborative Council. He's also the uh, communications director there for a number of years, a Geneva-based uh, UN organization. Dave has vast experience working in the developing world with basic things like hand washing, hygiene and sanitation, some of the things that have become quite the areas of focus in this age of the coronavirus. Absolutely. This is definitely a storm brewing in the developing world. I mean, if you think that places like New York City have problems with equipment, supplies and uh, respirators and so on, uh, when this hits uh, Nigeria or parts of India or the slums of Brazil, obviously we're going to be in big trouble there. Uh, but Dave knows a great deal about that. And of course, it'll be really interesting to hear from our former teammate. Dave, one of the original members of the Stockholm Rockets uh, basketball team. But one thing that struck me when you introduced Dave is that he's an expert, of course, in terms of hygiene and practices and hand washing in, in developing country settings. But the truth is the Western world itself has quite a bit of a problem with this. Uh, there was actually just a survey in the French press just a few days ago where they asked several thousand people to find out about their habits, uh, hand-washing habits, and it turned out that over 71% of guys did not wash their hands after using the restrooms. The women also had a very high percentage, which is kind of odd because washing hands has been sort of a basic principle of hygiene for hundreds of years, and we should know better than that. You also mentioned that Dave uh, these days lives in uh, Taiwan, and that's one of the primary reasons why we wanted to uh, talk to Dave, is to get his perspectives from there. Absolutely. Asia, as a, as a rule, really has been very successful at mitigating some of the more adverse uh, effects of this virus. But before we get to Dave, I, I do want to give you a quick 360 of some of the things happening in the world today. Obviously, there's tons of people, unfortunately, dying. We know about that. But there's also some unintended consequences of this crisis, which can be funny to some extent, but also they may have a darker angle. One of those things, uh, for example, is the mafia. Apparently, the mafia is losing tons of money. And the reason for that is because uh, support all over the world, of course, is shut down. So there's no possibility of putting bets on sports, and the mafia is unable to capitalize on that. So they're looking for new sources of revenue, and apparently, unfortunately, they're focusing more on narcotics, and we'll see what the long-term consequences of that will be. Another little anecdote that I heard uh, is, speaking of organized crime, that in the um, favelas of uh, Rio de Janeiro, the um, gangs there are uh, instituting a social distancing at gunpoint to keep people from spreading the virus. That's uh, one... But yeah, they, I mean, every segment of society is being impacted by this. And the long-term implications, of course, uh, are quite unclear. But one thing for sure, you can have been reading some economic reports. And there's going to be so many things that are going to be talked about in the future. And it's going to put into question our political institutions. Uh, we see economics, uh, we see growth, our social interactions. There's going to be quite a bit of debate on this. And I think that the world will not look the same when we're on the other side of this uh, crisis, to be honest. 
economist. Many different angles to explore, and that's one of the reasons why we love bringing in expert guests to bring uh, different perspectives. Uh, we have coming up Charles Parker, a political scientist and international relations and crisis management expert. Also, a little bit later on, we have uh, Victor Galaz from the Stockholm Resilience Center to give a kind of an environmental and resilience perspective on the coronavirus outbreak. And a lot of other guests that don't even know they're going to be guests yet, but uh, we're going to be getting in touch with them and uh, trying to get their insights as well onto a corona that, crisis and what's upon a pandemic. Exactly. And that's, that's the point of this podcast is we want to get different perspective in there, the international dimension, of course, so what's happening in Sweden contrasted to. But also, you know, a lot of us don't really know what's going to happen next. And, and there's so many aspects and so many angles to look at that. So our guests really will help us to, to get a clearer picture of what the implications of this are long term. Time now to turn things over to uh, Dave Truba, an expert on hygiene and sanitation in the developing world, which unfortunately looks to be one of the next battlefronts in this ongoing war against the coronavirus. Thanks very much, Eric. Uh, great to be on the program, and congratulations to you and Mark for coming up with this uh, timely podcast. It reminds me that, that you know, in this era of podcasting, there's lots of great content uh, freely available on choice on the web, but you were a pioneer way back in the day with podcasting through Think Globally Radio, coming there out of Stockholm, but broadcasting to the world, you know, 10, 15 years. So well done to you for, for keeping it going with this new podcast. Thanks, Dave. We didn't even know it was a podcast back then. We didn't call it a podcast because we didn't really know about <laughs> podcasts, but we were doing radio shows and putting up on the internet. So yeah, and we should certainly share some of the credit for that as well, Dave. Let's talk about the situation now with the coronavirus crisis uh, sweeping the world. And you are not that far away from the original epicenter in China. You're in Taiwan. Taiwan, it seems like it's managing this extremely well. Perhaps, Dave, you can tell us a bit about your observations and experiences there. Uh, sure, Eric. Happy to do that. I mean, these are my observations. It's it's no sort of official working capacity that I'm offering these observations. But I've been here for about a year, including these last three, four months, obviously, when, when this has exploded around the world. And, and you're right. Taiwan does seem to be doing a, a good job of managing the situation. I mean, as we're speaking... Um, I'm looking at the chart of, uh, you know, total number of cases in different places around the world. And Taiwan stands at about 298 overall. And, uh, you know, at the top of the list, of course, at this moment is the USA with 142,000. And we all have seen how hard Italy, China, Spain and many other places have been hit and, and also smaller countries. I've spent uh, a bit of time in the past in Estonia, a nice little country that I love there uh, on the border of the Baltic Sea. And, and even Estonia with its population of a million has uh, about 679 cases. So, you know, the 24 million people of Taiwan and uh, the government here, through a, a variety of interventions, have, have kept it, I think, pretty much at bay and, and manageable. And, and that's despite, as you mentioned, um, the proximity to uh, China and also the close relationship between China and Taiwan. Usually, there are about 800,000 Taiwanese people living in China and 400,000 actually working there. So there's a, a lot of travel back and forth. I think last year, 2019, there were about 2.9 million tourist visitors from China to Taiwan. So the chance for something like this to have um, sort of spiraled out of control was there, but it hasn't for probably a number of reasons that we can talk about a little bit later. And I think one other thing which can work to Taiwan's advantage and disadvantage, of course, is that it's an island, right? So its borders are the sea, the Straits of Taiwan, the Pacific Ocean. It's not like in the European Union and particularly in the, you know, in the Schengen area where you might have a lot of cross-border traffic of people who, who aren't necessarily, necessarily being checked or monitored, you know, having their temperature taken and things of that nature. These are the kinds of things that Taiwan was able to do quite early on, I think already from the 31st of December 
there were temperature checks and uh, health checks being taken of people arriving from China. And then since then, the Stanford uh, University Health Policy Center, uh, which has done a lot of interesting research on what's been happening uh, with the coronavirus, has identified about 120 very specific actions taken between the 31st of December and about you know several weeks ago that Taiwan took to sort of manage this crisis. And these sort of three categories of actions that they've identified are actions on border control, travel restrictions, and, and case findings. And then actions on, on resource allocation, so where money is put to do different types of things. And then finally, actions on communications and, and politics. What the Stanford University folks have also said is that Taiwan has been pretty good at using what they call big data, transparency, and a, a central command to protect its people from the coronavirus. And a lot of this stems from experience that Taiwan gained back in 2003 when it was hit pretty hard in the SARS crisis. And in fact, it was at that time that a sort of national health command center was established or essentially to be a leading disaster management center to be able to uh, respond in a quick and appropriate way for, for situations like this. So I think what we're seeing implemented, we're also seeing working. And for me, again, as a foreigner uh, with a residence permit, um, my wife is Taiwanese and, and living here over the last three, four months, I can honestly say that life more or less has gone on as normal. The only thing which has been impacted as of late, and this is mainly due to the situation that's developed in Europe and the United States, is that it's not really possible um, or desirable to travel to a European Union country or to the USA and then come back because then there's an automatic quarantine of you that goes on when you come back. But there have been no bans on big gatherings. Uh, restaurants are full. Everything is working as it should work. People who want or need face masks, who want or need medical care or tests, these things these things are all available, and I've more or less been living life here, but observing, you know, the very slowly and now almost exponentially expanding crisis in, in the other parts of the world. So it seems like Taiwan took very early action. December 31st, that's quite a bit earlier than, I mean, even at, at December 31st, that wasn't even, the, the WHO wasn't even calling this a pandemic, wasn't even saying there was human-to-human -human transmission, uh, not, not for several more weeks after that. That was also several weeks before Wuhan went into a lockdown. So it seems like it was the early action and doesn't sound like draconian action by any means, but, but some sort of aggressive and sophisticated actions. Would that be a good way to, to characterize the Taiwanese response at this point? Yes, I think that's a very good way to characterize it. And, um, you know, um, societies are different and, and their, their governance is different and, and their capabilities are, are different. Taiwan, for example, has a very good national health system. I think 99.2% of the people who live here are have access to that nationalized um, health care, which is free, for example. And there's also um, extremely low, low levels of poverty and uh, there's extremely high literacy. I mean, Taiwan has, um, you know, about the 20 or 21st largest uh, gross domestic product in the world. So it's it's an industrialized place and it's a, it's a progressive place with a president who won re-election um, for a second term a few months ago. And uh, they've also, uh, for example, legalized gay marriage. So it's a, it's a place that generally functions. But that's not to say that some of the things that may have been implemented here um, would have been welcome in, in other places. For example, one of the reasons why it, it seems to have worked here very well is that sort of large databases that exist were integrated and then sort of called into place. Immigration and customs databases and national health insurance databases were all 
pretty much linked from the beginning so that, you know, if someone, somebody was coming, well, here's one example. Early on in the year, when people were returning from different parts of the world, if they were returning from a country that was not a hotspot area or still is not a hotspot area, then they would be sent an SMS upon their arrival so that they could be fast-tracked through the immigration so that resources at the airports could be freed up to, you know, to allow people that needed to have health checks or temperature checks or things like that take place. So there's there's a sort of a sophistication in that that works. Uh, here's another example. Currently, when people um, come to Taiwan and they need to be automatically quarantined if they're coming from, let's say, Europe or America, They've set up a system so that there are wardens for the places where they're being quarantined in their homes. Or, uh, and these wardens are designed to help them with food and to do sorts of, you know, activities um, so that they can make it through their quarantine period safely. And it's even gotten to the point where uh, if somebody's um, mobile phone is, if their battery dies and uh, all of a sudden the people realize uh, in the authorities that they're sort of off the grid, then off the grid, then they'll get a visit to make sure, are you okay? What happened? And, and you know, hear people saying, Oh, sorry, my, my phone my phone just died. Although you do also get a case where people broke the quarantine and went to a bar or pub and were, were caught and were fined for that. So these actions that they're taking, I believe that they are certainly in the interests of public health. Um, would they work in all other places? I mean, that's hard to say. But there's no doubt that it's, again, worked here if you look at the sort of um, level of containment. Um, that's occurred. The greatest fear right now is kind of a second wave. And you're also seeing this in other places where the containment has worked pretty well, such as Singapore and Hong Kong, where you get maybe some people returning from abroad, perhaps students studying abroad or the last few tourists showing up. And, and you're worried about a reintroduction of, of this coronavirus. But so far, they're managing it. So it sounds like there's, there's also a surveillance aspect of this that uh, perhaps would be a little more problematic in Western countries. Is that what you're implying, that it wouldn't necessarily be able to, to function exactly the same way uh, in Sweden or the United States or Italy or, or elsewhere? You know, I, I, I don't think that's really for me to say. I can just say that it's it's worked here, but it's not been uh, implemented, I think, in a, in a pervasive or a draconian way. It's actually quite light touch in my own view. Where some of these uh, methods uh, maybe uh, put people off initially was, you know, when when it first started um, becoming a, a pandemic situation, at least in the minds of people here, perhaps before it was declared that by the WHO, then there was an, an early run on things like face masks. So the government needed to step in quite quickly to say, look, right now we have a limited supply and before we can really ramp up production to produce millions more of these face masks, which they have done, they needed to at least initiate a, a rationing system. And the rationing system was linked to, for example, the health insurance database and the national health insurance cards that people had. So if you had a number for your health insurance that ended in, let's say, an even number, then maybe you were only allowed to go to the pharmacy or to the hospital to buy face masks, subsidized, quite cheap. I think the, the cost right now is uh, 20 U.S. cents for a face mask. Perhaps, Steve, we can turn now a bit to the uh, some of the, the larger scale issues uh, between Taiwan and the United Nations. Of course, uh, Taiwan is not part of the U.N. system and particularly not a member of the WHO, the World Health Organization, which has created some tensions because all these best practices coming from Taiwan, all these medical insights from Taiwan, are perhaps not filtering into the UN system the way they could otherwise do, and vice versa, some of the WHO uh, knowledge is not making it Taiwan. Well, I mean, if you look at the response in Taiwan, again, they've managed the coronavirus. So, so with or without formal membership in the UN, um, with or without being able to be an observer to uh, the WHO and in particular the World Health Assembly, um, it doesn't mean that 
Taiwan has not been able to effectively manage the situation. I believe that the Taiwanese view would be what you often see as a Twitter hashtag, which is hashtag Taiwan can help. They believe that they have um, some good practices, uh, some some real experience that they would like to to share to to the broader world community um, and to those um, international organs that are part of the United Nations systems um, to which they don't belong. Probably for this podcast, we don't have you know time for a discussion like that. It's it's actually it's it's quite complicated when you start talking about things like a a one China policy, a one China principle, the original UN resolution which replaced the Republic of China, which is Taiwan. Uh, and replaced it with the People's Republic of China in 1971 or 72. This was a UN General Assembly Resolution number 2758. And while it did give the seat of China, so to speak, to the People's Republic of China, it did not address the issue of whether, for example, Taiwan uh, should be a member on its own or not. And at various times through the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, this, this issue has come up, but it's never really moved too far for a variety of reasons. Um, with regard to the Taiwanese participation with the World Health Assembly and the World Health Organization. Officially and formally, Taiwan, from the UN perspective, is looked at as a, as a part of China, which means that Taiwan should be getting its information from the Chinese, the People's Republic of China government. Now, if it is or not, um, I don't know. We live in a pretty well-connected world, and perhaps there are other ways of, of some of this information coming through. For example, Taiwan does have about 15 diplomatic allies or countries that officially recognize it. These are usually small, smaller countries, quite often small island developing states that, you know, as part of the UN system can get information from the World Health Organization and share it with Taiwan. So they are able to get information in a, uh, in a manner of speaking. But I think it's more a question of Taiwan just really wanting to help and to be a part of the international community. Uh, I mean, I, I, I personally will not level any criticism against the World Health Organization because the World Health Organization is part of the United Nations and the United Nations system as an entity. It's where uh, issues of uh, of uh, Taiwan's engagement in the, in the UN system need to be solved. Now, whether China will do uh, in the coming months as it did after the SARS epidemic and say, okay, we will allow Taiwan to be granted observer status to the World Health Assembly and to the WHO so that there can be an exchange of dialogue and expertise with Taiwanese experts, that's, that's remained to be seen. I mean, I would, I would hope, and this is a personal hope, that in a post-COVID-19 world, we're all, you know, scared a little bit straight about um, the challenges faced uh, with these near-term challenges like COVID-19, but also medium to long-term challenges like, like climate change. You know, and that this being scared straight a little bit engenders a bit more uh, cooperation and collaboration and a little bit less politicization of, of these sorts of things. In fact, one of the reasons why the response within Taiwan has worked so well is that quite early on between the various political parties that are, are that constitute the Taiwanese governance model, there was there was collaboration and there was sharing. Uh, you don't see the sort of back and forth like I've observed from abroad between, for example, Republicans and Democrats uh, in the USA. So, you know, to, to remove the politics out of it and acknowledge that pollution and viruses and pandemics and things of these natures cross borders increasingly in an interconnected world, that probably would be a good thing if we all came to that realization. How well do you think the WHO response has been to date in terms of sharing information between countries and uh, doing certain interventions to help combat this outbreak? 
Um, I believe that the World Health Organization has done, on the whole, a good job. Um, there, there is from different quarters, from different parts of the world, of course, some some criticism, constructive or otherwise, saying that perhaps the pandemic could have been declared earlier. Perhaps uh, you know tests could have been made available to to member countries more quickly. What I what I will say is that I I, I do believe that um, WHO as an organization uh, learned how to operate in emergency situations like this from the experience that it had earlier from SARS, for example, and MERS and Ebola. Um, is it perfect? Probably not. We don't live in a perfect world. What we need to remember about the United Nations system, of which the WHO is an important part, is that uh, the UN system is, is made up of member states. So really, each uh, and every entity within the UN system is only as effective as the amount of engagement and funding support and cooperation that comes from, from the, um, the member states which are a part of it. Does that somehow compromise its independence in some ways then? Well, um, I think that probably there are there are uh, people who would say that. Um, I don't feel that I'm in a position to say that, to be honest. Um, I believe that the people who work at the WHO from um, the director general on down take a very um, serious view of uh, public health. They take a very serious view of science. And they they work in a normative fashion. What we need to remember is is that the WHO is not a a boots on the ground organization per se. Um, they offer guidelines, they offer science, they offer guidance, and it's important that the that the member states, uh, you know, are willing to step up to the plate and 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 do their own part. Um, now, if you're asking me. Could uh, the WHO have been influenced by a, a, a large country, perhaps China, to delay the um, the reporting uh, of information coming out about this? Um, uh, it, it could be, but I'm not. I'm to be honest. I, I'm an observer of this in in the same way that many other people are. So it's difficult to say. Perhaps we can talk a bit about some of your work previously when you worked inside of the UN system at the Water Supply and Sanitation Collaborative Council. You're still a member of the board of that organization. And for many years, for what, 10, 15 years now, you've been championing hand washing, which now all of a sudden is, of course, one of the main ways that people can stay safe and help combat the spread of COVID-19. Yeah, thanks for that, Eric. That's a very good segue. I mean, if we put it in the context, at least initially, of the COVID-19 situation, I think we've still yet to see what the true impact is in poorer, more developing parts of the world, in particular in, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, also in, in parts of um, South Asia, and also in, uh, in small island developing states, for example. So we know that in Europe, we know that in other parts of Asia, and we know that in North America, the health systems infrastructure is pretty good. It may not be working perfectly, but uh, there are hospitals, there is hygiene, there are healthcare professionals, there are protective equipment, and there are tests. Uh, this may not be the case, and in fact, it's probably not the case in you know places necessarily like Nigeria or Malawi or Bangladesh. So I think in the next few weeks, we're going to really see what the impact of this COVID-19 situation is in those places. Now, this current situation is linked to the historical crisis that's got to do with sanitation and hygiene in those parts of the world. If we think about it, at the very moment when we're speaking, you know, it's a planet that has 7.3, 7.4 billion people on it. 
and about 4.5 billion, so more than 50%, don't have access to safe sanitation and don't have access to, to good hygiene, either practices or materials like soap. If we look at it, there are one in two who live without access to safely managed sanitation across the world. One in three persons globally lack basic hand-washing facilities at home. One in three children worldwide lack basic sanitation services at their school. One in five healthcare facilities globally has no sanitation service. This might include, for example, maternity wards where babies are being born. And, and sepsis coming from infections as a result of poor hygiene kills more people every year than cancer, for example. 70% of the healthcare workers do not routinely practice hand hygiene. And, and hundreds of millions of women who are menstruating at any given moment, it's about 300 million around the world, they don't have means to ensure that their menstrual health and hygiene is maintained. So this current COVID-19 impact, the potential impact, is going to hit quite hardly in places which have been, which have been suffering for a long time. So what my hope is that um, there's just greater awareness of the importance of um, sanitation and hygiene moving forward and that we need to look at the response not only in terms of um, emergency or humanitarian response, but in terms of long-term development so that as the sustainable development goals give us an aspiration that, you know, in 10 years' time we have, we have um, safely managed sanitation and hygiene uh, and that we have menstrual hygiene management practices for girls you know, taken care of and that actually we've left nobody behind in this effort to make sure that everybody has their access to um, sanitation, which is a human right, and access to water and access to good hygiene. So it's really, it's really shown a, a spotlight on a subject which has been important and has been around, but it hasn't necessarily been high on the, on the political and certainly not high on the financing agenda as much as it should have been over the last 20 years, perhaps. I don't recall the name of the institution off the top of my head, but about 10 or 12 years ago, a U.S.-based institution together with, um, I believe, the World Bank essentially did a survey of the most cost-effective health interventions in the world. And hand-washing hygiene was determined to be the most cost-effective health intervention in the world for the cost at that time of U.S. $6, one what they call daily or disability-adjusted life year, could be averted. It's a very effective way to prevent transmission of diseases, and it's a very effective way to save lives. There's actually every year on the 15th of October a global hand-washing day, and for a while the, uh, the sort of theme of the global hand-washing day was um, hand-washing the do-it-yourself vaccine. It's pretty true, if you think about it. And I think in this day and age, in the COVID-19 era, people are paying a lot more attention to sanitation and hygiene than they ever did in their life, everywhere in the world. <laughs>